This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. This year, many of the movies nominated for the top Oscar prize are once again drawn from history, like this frontrunner, which already snagged a handful of Golden Globes. And the Golden Globe goes to The Revenant. The survival story of Hugh Glass might earn Leonardo DiCaprio his elusive Oscar, but today's audiences are hardly the first to be captivated by this historical figure. In the 1970s, I would, I would call him a hippie. Today on Backstory, history in Hollywood, from living through Bridge of Spies to the history of psychology and Inside Out. We'll even dabble in the business ourselves by creating your suggestions for history movie trailers. Don't tread on me, motherfucker. History at the 2016 Oscars. Today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Peter Onuf. We're going to start today with a story you might find familiar if you've gone to the movies recently. In the summer of 1823, a fur trapper named Hugh Glass was mauled by a mother grizzly bear in South Dakota. <laughs> hey, Peter, you know, I think I've heard this somewhere. This sounds a lot like the plot to The Revenant. Well, yeah, that's true. And the film does bill itself as inspired by this true story. But, Brian, this is a spoiler-free zone. I'm going to tell you about Hugh Glass, the historical figure, which is different from what you see in the film. However, I, I got to admit, many of the details are cinematic. The bear attack was brutal. The grizzly apparently bit into Glass's head, sliced his throat, cut him from scalp to hamstring, broke his leg, and tore a chunk from his backside. Oh, God, Peter. Have you ever heard of the phrase, too much information? Yeah, other trappers in this company shot and killed the bear, which saved Glass. However, when the men saw Glass, they thought that he was a goner. This is historian John Coleman. He's written about the real Hugh Glass, and it's going to help me tell this story. They waited for him to die. They dug his grave, but he hung on for days. Two trappers who'd been ordered to stay behind and bury Glass eventually left their wounded comrade behind, taking his gun and equipment with them. But Glass refused to die. Glass set his broken leg and began to crawl back to civilization. And this whole time, the thing that kept him going was that he wanted to kill the men who left him and took his stuff. It's a setup for a classic revenge story that ultimately uh, didn't happen. The story ends on a very anticlimax. Glass forgave the men who left him after lecturing them. <laughs> <laughs> Forgives the men who left him? That is not something that Hollywood would make a movie of. In other words, the Hugh Glass story is kind of a letdown. Yeah, it doesn't fit the, the Western ending, which has to be, you know, redemption through bloodshed. Want an even bigger letdown? 
Coleman says even this version of the legendary survivor's story may be more fiction than fact. So what are the historical facts? Well, we know that Hugh Glass existed, that there was a human being with that name. We know pretty much that he was attacked by a bear. There are some sources that says that he was left for dead. Now, whether he crawled 200 miles to recover, probably not. Most of the details of Glass's survival tale are lost to history, but in a way, they don't really matter. Coleman says that Hugh Glass's story has become a frontier myth, and that Glass himself has been adapted and updated for American audiences for nearly 200 years. You know, uh, Hugh Glass has to change to keep uh, crawling through these many different versions of himself. In other words, the latest version of the story, which has racked up 12 Oscar nominations, including Best Actor, Best Director, Best Picture, says more about Americans today than Hugh Glass in 1823. The Revenant is not the only Oscar-nominated film this year to draw on history for inspiration. In fact, the majority of Oscar-winning films over the Academy's nearly 80-year history have been based on events from the past. So today on the show, we're going to continue our annual tradition of exploring history at the Oscars. We'll hear the family story behind Bridge of Spies and even discuss how Pixar's Inside Out charts more than a century of research on human emotions. And a special treat. We've made movie trailers for the historical films that you, our listeners, suggested. But first, let's return to the many stories of Hugh Glass. When I spoke with John Coleman, I asked him how Glass's larger-than-life tale ended up having so many incarnations through American history. The event happened in 1823. By 1825, 1826, the nation knew about it. And I think that Hugh Glass is a a participant in the story that he created. I think he told this story over and over again. And I would imagine that he was pretty good at the storytelling. And he had a big reveal where he took off his shirt and showed everybody his scars. And there was a different group of men in the Mississippi Valley, Illinois, who were aspiring writers. And these guys Mm -hmm. were on the lookout for great stories, especially great stories about the West. Um, And one of these writers heard the story about Hugh Glass, and he wrote it up himself, and he sent it to his brother in Philadelphia, and it was published in a literary magazine. Uh, Once it was published in this magazine, different newspapers throughout the country began picking up the story. And you can go back and you can see how it went from the West, went to the East Coast, and then started filtering back um, through the Midwest. Um, And it spread pretty fast. And why should the nation care so much? Lots of important things are happening, as we learned in in the history books. Hugh Glass getting mauled. Why do they care? Well, I think they were looking for iconic Americans. I think it got picked up early on because Americans in the 1820s were very interested in finding out where they came from. So uh, Americans are suffering what you might call an identity crisis. Uh, They're trying to figure out who they are. Right. And one of the sources of becoming an American was the frontier. Um, And if you go back to a figure like Daniel Boone in the late 18th century, uh, Americans and even Europeans were very interested in these children of nature. 
these men who are going out um, into the wilderness and somehow emerging as a new uh, creature, a new species of man. Um, so Hugh Glass is a, an example of how Americans melded with the continent through these experiences in nature. Right, so it's right. a very important that his body uh, was changed, that he could show his scars um, and the bear as as a figure of the wilderness, as a symbol of the ferocity of North America and the West. Um, it's a primal encounter. Right. You overcame all of this and you survived. So, and, and survival is a triumph, but that's right. not the way Hugh Glass might have thought about it. No, I think it, when you look at the sources, the men, when they told stories like this, and there are several of these wild survival tales of men being stripped naked and running through you know, prairies for days on end, they talk about endurance instead mm -hmm. of dominance. It's getting mm -hmm. through, making it to the end. Mm -hmm. um, so he was a very vulnerable um, guy in that way. And what's so fascinating to me about this moment is that the United States was just a bit player in this region. People had no notion that North America and the West is something that human beings could completely conquer. So the film is a powerful statement for Americans in the 1820s, and it does provide, as you say, a kind of origin myth that is, we overcame these great difficulties as a people, and this is our continent, it's nature's nation, all that good stuff. Uh, give us a brief uh, run through the changing understanding of or the changing character of Hugh Glass, what Americans have projected onto this mythic figure in the years since the story was first told. I think that... There was a half dozen accounts printed in the 19th century. He became a frontier figure in the early 20th century in that he represented a time that was past, that the frontier was mm -hmm. closed. And then another key moment is the film in the early 1970s, uh, Man in the Wilderness, where you have Richard Harris. And I would argue that that's very much a, a 70s countercultural Hugh yeah. Glass. He is a uh, an anti-authoritarian um, kind of um, figure. That mm -hmm. he is he. It's a critique of of bosses and American power. Mm -hmm. He's kind of a hippie. I would I would call him a hippie. So it's interesting that in all these moments, Hugh Glass is a is is on the outside, um, and that that's what makes him useful to storytellers. And he's also kind of a rebel uh, throughout. So, so John, why why does the story of Glass resonate so much today? Why why do you think we're still interested in this guy? You know, in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, when you have this kind of climactic moment of Cold War showdowns with Reagan and a resurgence of American self perception as as a superpower, I think you see Glass become very macho. He's certainly not a hippie anymore. Now, if you Google Hugh Glass, the word badass uh, keeps uh, coming up. Um, so he's seen as a tough guy, right? Mm. So in a way, he's a role model for, I don't know, a CrossFit nation that is obsessed with <laughs> um, dominating nature. So there's, there's no vulnerability left in him. But I think he started out that way.
Don Coleman is a historian at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of Here Lies Hugh Glass, A Mountain Man, A Bear, and The Rise of the American Nation. As we were planning today's episode, we gave our listeners a backstory challenge. Give us a movie genre and a historical figure, and we'll produce a satirical movie trailer for it. Well, you guys did not disappoint. Graduate student Michael Sagarolo in New York City sent us a few ideas. One was a superhero movie charting Teddy Roosevelt's transformation from a sickly child to rugged mountain man. But what really caught our attention was this suggestion. Hi, Backstory. I heard your listener's challenge, and I thought it would be fun to do a movie trailer with Paul Revere's ride done as a Fast and the Furious-style street racing movie. In a colony plagued by tyranny. I'm sick and tired of the English dogs telling us what to do. When the enemy is about to strike. It's time to finish this. We're going to leave Boston and crush these so-called patriots. One ordinary silversmith will sound the alarm and ignite a revolution. Get me Paul Revere. The English are on the move. They're coming after our guns in Concord. Someone's got to warn them, Revere, and you're the fastest driver the Sons of Liberty has. You want me to run past the Redcoats? Sounds like my kind of job. I got all the horsepower I need. One flare of the Redcoats leave the city on foot. Two if they take the sea route. Got it? Do you understand? The British. They're coming. The British may try to stop him. You've got nowhere to run, Revere. But they'll never stop the revolution. Don't tread on me, mother... This summer, Paul Revere is the Midnight Rider. That historical movie idea came from listener Michael Salgarolo. We'll take a crack at another listener-suggested film later in the show. Hey, guys, we're lucky today. One of our producers, Emily Gaddick, has been to Sundance and is joining Ooh. us to tell us about what the future and. Film and TV. Hey, thanks for coming back. Oh, my wow. pleasure. So what'd you find? 
Well, I brought back three things from Sundance that I think you'll enjoy. We got a TV show, a documentary, and a feature film. Okay, good. Which one's for mm, me? Great. Well, the first one, I will say, Brian, I think you might recognize this date. It's called 11-22-63. Uh, yeah, I got that. The yeah. day that Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah. Tragic day. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, so it is a miniseries that's starring James Franco, produced by J.J. Abrams of Star Trek and Wars fame, and also based on a novel by Stephen King. So lots of star power. Much like Amazon's recent series, The Man in the High Castle, it's an alternative history. So a man finds a way to get back to 1960 and decides that he is going to wait it out till 1963 and try and stop Kennedy's assassination. Oh, so we got to figure out if he does or not. We got to figure out if he does or not. But the tagline for the series, the somewhat ominous tagline is, the past doesn't want to be changed. So the sure. more that he tries to accomplish this goal, the harder the universe or whatever you want to call it pushes back mm-hmm. against him. All right. Well, I okay. am I am predicting... <laughs> that no matter how much the past pushes back, the hero changes it. Why am I predicting this? Oliver Stone. Hmm. Oliver Stone made the movie about John F. Kennedy, and the central theme of that movie, and people loved it, was that everything would have been okay in America if only Kennedy had lived. No Vietnam War better race relations, you name it. And that is a very, very powerful undertow in American history. So yeah. you think that the twist of this was going to be that he stops the Kennedy assassination no, and it ends I, up much worse. Oh, okay. Well, let's find out. Okay, what, what, what's right. the other gift you got for All us? Right. That sounds well, intriguing. Yeah. This next movie I found really intriguing as someone that works in the digital world. I think you guys will too. It's called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, and it's by a director named Warner Herzog, who you might have heard of before. I love Herzog. <laughs> he did something about that bear who yeah. starred in The Revenant. <laughs> and Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Yeah, totally. That's the guy. It's a really interesting documentary that kind of looks at both the past and the present of the internet. So he starts out in 1969 with the very first message ever sent between UCLA and Stanford, sure. which actually was low. They were trying to type log, but they right. it crashed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what was interesting for me and probably for you guys as historians was he posits that we are probably living in what people will call the digital dark age in that we've moved so quickly into the digital world, the only way most of what we make is backed up is digitally. So if those servers are lost, people have no idea what we were thinking. And and they've actually made the comparison, Peter, between um, the founding fathers. We have such a volume of their correspondence. We right, know exactly right. what they're thinking. Was it a librarian who's making this movie? Because that's uh, they, the librarians, archivists are talking about this all the time, yeah. and, and they're actually doing something about it. It made me think, where are all the, all the episodes of Backstory living right now? If the internet goes down... In the hearts and minds of our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Information never dies. But the episodes might. <laughs> so that's the second one. Um, our third movie was the big hit of the festival, Birth of a Nation, yeah. uh, Nate Parker's oh, film yeah. about wow. the Nat Turner Rebellion. Yeah, Nat Turner's Rebellion, it's in many ways the turning point of the history of the antebellum South, the largest mm. slave revolt in American history, 1831, Virginia. Uh, over 50 white people killed and then 200 African-American people killed in retaliation. Mm. Uh, after that, a lot of the laws toughened up. And um, after that, a lot of white Southerners were haunted by the idea of who the next Nat Turner might be. Mm. So I'm looking forward to hearing about this movie. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, Birth of a Nation. Yeah, it's called Birth of a Nation. Why? Uh, I I wonder. It's definitely a reference, a very explicit reference to D.W. Griffith's movie of the same right. name, which was about the rise of the Klan. And actually, I think the way it was framed was really interesting. So it, it actually starts with a quote by Thomas Jefferson, which might be familiar to you, Peter. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice yeah. cannot sleep forever. Yeah. And the last mm-hmm. shot of the film is at Nat Turner's execution. And uh, there's a close up on the face of a young man in the crowd, a young black man. And the camera kind of swings around and you see that he is transformed into a Union soldier charging forward with an American flag. I mean, we know what the nation is for the Griffith uh, uh-huh. birth of a nation. That's the white nation. Yeah. So what's this one? Well, here's what I'll say. Calling it a birth of a nation is very intentional for two reasons, right? There's that the D.W. Griffith's movie is very much about the rise of the Klan, and this is kind of like the the mirror or the inverse of that. Yes. Um, and the other reason is that Birth of a Nation was an incredibly innovative film, that it really mm-hmm. changed filmmaking that came it after it. And I think that Nate Parker hopes that this experience, that the film is commercially successful, will help change uh, filmmaking after it and that it makes films like this about a largely African-American cast and event um, commercially viable. You know, there's a real history behind using Nat Turner's Rebellion as a pivot uh, to talk about the current day. I mean, mm-hmm. William mm-hmm. Styron, a white author, yeah. won the Pulitzer Prize in 1967, and it was supposed to have been a movie made of it then, mm-hmm. but unleashed a firestorm uh, in many ways was sort of a, a signal moment in the birth of black power. It'll be very interesting to see how America has changed yeah. in the meantime and what comes of this. Yeah. Backstory producer Emily Gaddick brought us that report from the Sundance Film Festival. The two films she mentioned, Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, and Birth of a Nation, don't have release dates yet. But 11-22-63 will be available on Hulu starting February 15th. That's 21516. This year's crop of Oscar nominees has been widely criticized for ignoring standout films and performances by African Americans. The hashtag OscarsSoWhite began trending right after the nominations were released, and notable celebrities like director Spike Lee have declared their intention to boycott the show. Considering this controversy, we decided to explore past critiques of films excluding African American voices. A moment ago, We mentioned D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, the 1915 blockbuster that rewrote the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction and celebrated the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, Nate Parker's not the only black director who sought to answer Griffith. In 1920, just five years after the release of The Birth of a Nation, a filmmaker named Oscar Michaud actively challenged Griffith's version of history. His silent film was called Within Our Gates. Like Birth of a Nation, Within Our Gates follows a romance that unites North and South and depicts the violent unrest of Reconstruction. The difference is, in the Michaud film, the hopeful lovers are black and the violent criminals are white. To understand the differences between these two interpretations of history, we asked Robert Jackson, a cultural studies professor at the University of Tulsa, to walk us through two parallel scenes of lynching in the films. Let's take The Birth of a Nation first. In that story, the victim of the lynching is a young black soldier, Gus, who's come to town as part of the federal government's occupation of the defeated South. 
And he sets his sights on this young girl who is the daughter of a uh, prominent white family and essentially asks her if she will consider marrying him, which she takes as the most horrifying possible idea that has ever been presented. So the dramatic sequence that follows includes a kind of chase sequence. And uh, Gus finally chases this, this young girl to the top of a rocky cliff where she flings herself off rather than being captured by him and presumably rather than being raped by, by this guy. So that precipitates then this enormous event of violence in which Gus is ritualistically lynched by the emerging force of the Ku Klux Klan, an event that's presented in pretty graphic detail. In this so-called history, the problem is black men's sexual aggression toward white women. The solution is community justice, administered by the heroic Klan. And as twisted as that sounds today, in 1915, this attitude was a pretty mainstream view among white Americans, both North and South. And in fact, Birth of a Nation gave rise to the modern Ku Klux Klan, which emerged across the entire United States in the 1920s. Okay, so let's turn to Within Our Gates, which takes a similar event and constructs a totally different narrative. Here, too, we have a narrowly averted rape and a lynching. But this time, the story is told as a flashback, narrated by a black woman rather than from Griffith's omniscient perspective. And here, the sexual aggressor is a white man, and the victim is a black schoolteacher named Sylvia. The white man is never punished. Instead, it's Sylvia's innocent parents who are lynched for a separate crime, which they did not commit. And Michaud is very clear to cut from the scenes of lynching that are presented in horrifying detail to the, uh, the sort of root cause of the problem in race relations. And that is never overreaching black sexuality, as it was in Birth of a Nation, but instead the kind of sense of ownership that white people continue to feel for African Americans, and specifically an attempted rape by a powerful white man of a young black woman who is defending herself as heroically as she possibly can. So in this case, lynching is revealed to be not a, uh, a tool for bringing civilization into being, but instead something that tears apart civilization. The key to making this argument is the way Michaud cuts between scenes of the lynching and Sylvia's fight against her would-be rapist. Look, he's saying, the problem is not that black men are attacking white women. The problem is that white people are attacking black people, both men and women. It really demonstrates, I think, the way that history can be viewed from all sorts of different perspectives. Some people have called Michaud the black D.W. Griffith, Jackson says that's not really fair. Michaud never had anything close to Griffith's budget. He could only show his films in a handful of segregated theaters, and he had to contend with censors who claimed his stories would stir up racial hatred. Within Our Gates' impact was nothing like that of Birth of a Nation, but it did suggest a different way of portraying history on film. Michaud didn't strive for unbiased omniscience the way Griffith had, and he didn't claim to be writing history as it had actually happened. Instead, he brought the story down to the ground and captured something of the experience of the people who lived through it. Helping us tell that story was Robert Jackson from the University of Tulsa. He's currently writing a book about Southern film in the early 20th century. 
A version of that story appeared on a 2013 episode of Backstory about history and film. Robert Jackson helped us tell it. He's a professor of cultural studies at the University of Tulsa. If you'd like to hear more about race in Hollywood, join us for a special online event on February 25th. I'll be hosting a Google Hangout with historians and film industry professionals. We'll be discussing the history of diversity in film and the Oscars So White campaign. You can submit your questions for the event through Twitter. Just head to our website, backstoryradio.org, to learn more. We're turning now to a movie that's about a controversial chapter in Hollywood history, the Oscar-nominated Trumbo. That film follows the career of screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who wrote classic films from Roman Holiday and Exodus to Spartacus. He was also one of the Hollywood Ten, a group of directors, producers, and screenwriters who were blacklisted after they refused to testify before Congress about their alleged ties to the Communist Party. The blacklist lasted from 1947 to the mid-1960s, and it didn't stop with the Hollywood Ten. Studios refused to hire hundreds of people, from actors and directors down to set decorators, all because of their political leanings. It hurts to see your film go up on the screen and your name not on it, you know. This is Norma Barsman. In 1947, she and her husband, Ben Barsman, lived in Hollywood, where they both worked as screenwriters. We got married and we had a girl, and then 12 months later we had a boy, and they were darling, and and I had a third one in my tummy, and I was working, and he was working, and we were so happy, and of course... Um, McCarthy and the blacklist came along. The Barsmans were also communists. The Barsmans knew they were being watched by the FBI and that a subpoena to testify to name names before Congress might be coming any day. They managed to throw the FBI off the scent by swapping houses with a friend and neighbor, a director named Bernard Vorhaus. And what do you think happened? The FBI chnicks um, with subpoenas came looking for us, and Bernard Vorhaus went to the door and said, I am not Ben Barsman. And they said, are you sure this is Ben Barsman's house? And he said, I'm very sure I am not Ben Barsman. And the FBI chnicks went away. But then we knew that it was getting too close, too hot. The Barsmans fled the U.S. in 1949 rather than testify before Congress. They settled in Paris and became part of a group of exiled Hollywood writers and directors. But the blacklist still had power in Europe. In order to work, the Barsmans had to write scripts under pseudonyms, which often meant taking a substantial pay cut. And at one point, the U.S. government revoked Norma Barsman's passport. The government stripped her Canadian-born husband of his U.S. citizenship three years later. Still... Barsman says many other blacklisted writers had it far worse. Bobby Lees, who was a great um, screenwriter, he could have left too with his wife and his children like us, but he stayed. He, he, he couldn't get a job at anything. He was a filling station uh, attendant for a while till they found out who he was, and then they fired him from the filling station. Um, He was a head waiter for a while until they found out who he was and that he was blacklisted and he lost his head waiter job. The Barsmans, on the other hand, managed to thrive despite the blacklist. 
They bought an apartment in Paris where they raised their seven children. Ben's citizenship was eventually restored. And in 1958, Norma got her passport back at the U.S. consulate in Nice, France. And I sat in the waiting room, and then they called me in, and it was a lovely, lovely, beautiful black young woman. She hugged me, and she had tears in her eyes as she handed me back my passport. You can imagine. She was in tears, and I was in tears, and I put my passport in my pocket, and, um, and I went home, and Ben said, now we can go to England together. And the next thing I knew, he took a taxi to buy, go buy tickets, and he, he left my passport in the taxi. <laughs> Today, at age 95, Barsman is back in Los Angeles and still writing. But many others who were blacklisted, especially actors and directors with long, unexplained gaps in their resumes, were unable to revive their careers. Barsman says that should not be forgotten. We are a free and wonderful country, and the blacklist is not the sort of thing that the, this marvelous, wonderful country that I love should do. It's a terrible thing. It's like you seeing your, your lovely child killing someone. It's not a pretty, it's not a pretty picture. That was screenwriter Norma Barsman. You can read more about her exploits in her book, The Red and the Blacklist, the intimate memoir of a Hollywood expatriate. As we mentioned earlier in the show, listeners have been suggesting ideas for films inspired by history, and we've been producing the movie trailers. Listener Greg Hargreaves wrote to us asking for a sci-fi epic about Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. In the year 2103. My fellow Americans, the time for our expansion has come. Breaking news today, we're just now hearing that France has sold the United States the Louisiana Nebula. To explore our newest acquisition, I have put together a core of discovery. I present the leaders of this expedition, two of our nation's finest, Captain Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Good luck, boys. You're gonna need it. Lewis and Clark had one job. Clark, here's the plan. President Jefferson wants us to find a route to the Outer Pacific Rim. Men, set your coordinates for the Missouri Meteor Cluster. Lewis is a natural leader. Clark, a rugged adventurer. Together, they'll go on an epic journey across time and space. Featuring Toussaint Chabonneau as the obligatory Frenchman. Oh, oui, bon. And communications officer Sacagawea. 
But why are you called the core of discovery? You haven't discovered anything. We have discovered this territory for the United States. Yeah, but a lot of people live here. A lot of people. Yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. This summer, a tale of intergalactic exploration that proves that sometimes you have to get lost to find what you're looking for. Lewis and Clark in The Core of Discovery, The First Frontier. Listener Greg Hargreaves sent us that movie idea. We're going to turn now to one of the front runners in the best animated feature film category, Inside Out. The plot sounds simple. It follows the life of 11-year-old Riley Anderson as she moves from Minnesota to San Francisco. But the real focus of the story is Riley's inner life, conveyed by five funny, relatable emotions that control her brain. Ever wonder why you feel the way you do? We'll get to know your emotions. Inside Out is a kid's movie, but it also reflects more than two centuries of research on the science of emotion. Backstory producer Kelly Jones wanted to learn more about that history, so she talked to one of the psychologists who helped Pixar make the film. In 2010, psychology professor Dacker Keltner got a call from Pixar director Pete Docter. He calls me up and he says, I'm going to do this movie on the emotions inside an 11-year-old girl. And I was like, good luck, <laughs> you know. Doctor needed that luck. A feature film about a child's inner life doesn't exactly sound like box office magic. To make it work, Doctor created five characters that wrestle for control over a console in Riley Anderson's brain. There's Joy. Joy. Yes, Joy. You'll be in charge of the console, keeping Riley happy all day long. And may I Sadness. Crying helps me slow down and obsess over the weight of life's problems. Disgust. When I'm through, Riley will look so good, the other kids will look at their own outfits and barf. Fear. Almost finished with the potential disasters. And anger. Our life was perfect until Mom and Dad decided to move to San Fran's state town. Keltner says the movie shows that these emotions help people navigate the world. They guide how we remember things and detect things in our environments, and they're fundamental to how we engage in our social interactions and our relationships. But that emotions even matter is a fairly modern idea. You know, for 2,500 years, we've really privileged reason and rational thought and cool, dry ways of looking at the world. One of the first scientists to take emotions seriously was Charles Darwin. In the 1870s, he mapped over 40 different kinds of emotions by studying facial expressions. He wanted to prove that human emotions had an evolutionary purpose. And naturally, Darwin found that when it comes to emotions, humans ain't nothing but mammals. So when we feel love, we have a certain way of 
tilting her head and looking into the eyes like a dog would. When we show rage, we look a lot like uh, a chimpanzee baring the teeth and showing, you know, power. These kinds of mammalian behaviors are on display in the film. Hey, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. When baby Riley's parents try to feed her something new and potentially toxic, she wrinkles her nose and pushes her plate away. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! Disgust is just expressing centuries of evolutionary instinct to protect Riley. Keltner says that Darwin's theory of emotion was a crucial first step but it couldn't account for everything. Like what's happening in our minds as we look at the world, right? When we're feeling an emotion, suddenly the world seems to be colored by that entire emotion. Or what's happening in our bodies. In the 1880s, American psychologist and philosopher William James tried to explain what's happening in your body when you experience emotions. And, you know, a lot of people and sort of the consensus of the day was that emotions... You see something happen, you feel an emotion, and then you take action, or, and it's supported by physiology. For example, if you saw a bear in the woods, you'd feel afraid, and that would make you run. James turned that formula on its head. He thought that as soon as you see a bear... You have this bodily response. Your heart palpitates, your stomach clenches, your muscles tighten, you, the saliva dries up in your mouth, and, and then you have this experience. And so he was claiming emotions are defined by very specific physiological embodied responses. The inside-out version of James's bear in the woods is a dinnertime scene. What starts as a typical family conversation quickly escalates. Uh, so, Riley, how was school? School was great, all right? Riley, Riley throws a physical okay? temper tantrum, which you can hear as disgust and anger take over. That's it. Go to your room. Now. And what we now know is even a lot of the basic communicative processes of emotion, like the tone of voice that disgust produces in Riley in her first snarky comment, is really a bodily response. It's sort of the tightening of muscles around your lungs that produce air particles that go through your vocal cords. Those are tightened that would now fit a Jamesian view of embodied emotion. Now, James presented this view before scientists knew very much about how the nervous system works. But Darwin and James did show that emotions are embodied human behaviors. In the 1960s, the psychology of emotion had a third revolution. Researchers found that language and social situations also matter. What really drives emotion is the context you're in, and then how you label that context, right? We use words and scripts and sentences and metaphors and concepts. And, and that then leads to this whole new thinking about emotions as constructed with language by interpreting the context we're in. In one scene from the film, Riley's imaginary friend Bing Bong, a cotton candy-based part cat, part elephant, part dolphin, is devastated that Riley is forgetting about him as she grows older. Riley can't be done with me. But Bing Bong feels better when sadness helps him label his experience. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! That's how 
sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. Yeah, it's sad. And so it, that scene nicely illustrates this thesis that the context we face in life can be labeled with different emotional themes, be it joy or sadness as we lose our childhood. Spoiler alert. By the end of the movie, joy and sadness learn to work together inside Riley's head. And Riley learns that a moment can feel both happy and sad. And, and really in the past 15 years, what scientists have ter- turned their attention to is, all right, given these different processes of emotion, behavior, physiology, language, what do emotions do for us? Keltner says that emotions bind people together. They're what make humans social animals. In the final scene of Inside Out, Riley reconciles with her parents. The family collapses into a pile of hugs. In this case, Riley is sad. She conveys the sadness, the sense of loss. I miss home. I miss Minnesota. It brings her parents into tactile contact with her. She expresses comfort. And out of that emotion is going to grow these ways of replacing what was lost. New hockey team, new friends, new patterns of social life in the home in San Francisco. And and what that scene illustrates, as well as any scene I've seen in art, is this new idea that emotions coordinate our interactions with other people in ways that meet the demands of the current situation. They have these social functions. She has great new friends, a great new house. Things couldn't be better. After all, Riley's 12 now. What could happen? Keltner says that Inside Out portrays a world that's come a long way from thinking of emotions as useless. It is very hard with language to convey the central thesis of Inside Out. And and I think they got it right. Well, they got it right for now. As for whether it will hold up. You know, we're going to be a much more multi-ethnic culture. And with ethnicity comes different views of emotions, right? And so joy might seem like a particularly Western, peppy emotion. And in a more multicultural lens, that positive state in Riley's head might be a different kind of feeling like simpatica in Mexican-American culture, which is warmer and more connective than joy. So I think that we'll, we'll look upon this movie as a fitting for the 21st century in the early stages, but we'll, we'll do a different kind of uh, sequel. Dacker Keltner is a psychology professor at UC Berkeley and faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. Backstory producer Kelly Jones brought us that story. We're going to end today by focusing on a man who played a key role in some of the 20th century's most dramatic events, and yet you've probably never heard of him, James B. Donovan. Donovan worked for the Office of Strategic Services during World War II and helped prosecute Nazi leaders in the Nuremberg trials after the war. He also secretly negotiated the rescue of some 10,000 U.S.-backed fighters captured in Cuba after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. The Oscar-nominated film Bridge of Spies 
portrays another chapter of Donovan's life. On February 10, 1962, the American lawyer brokered a high-stakes spy swap on a snow-covered bridge in East Berlin. The U.S. traded CIA pilot Francis Gary Powers, whose spy plane had been shot down over the Soviet Union, for KGB Colonel Rudolf Abel. Bridges' spies begins five years before that famous exchange. Colonel Abel was caught running an espionage ring in the U.S., and Donovan was asked to defend him in court. James Donovan died in 1970 at the age of 53. But we wanted to get a sense of how Donovan's decision to represent a public enemy affected those closest to him. He was very clear to tell the three of us, the three children, that there may be animosity, there could be difficulties, and you just need to know that I'm here to to show everybody in the world how America handles a fair trial. My name is Mary Ellen Fuller. And I'm the proud daughter of James B. Donovan. I, I was eight years old when he was uh, requested to defend the Russian spy Rudolf Abel. So it was a very, very controversial decision on his part because defending a Russian spy in the late 50s was not considered a good thing, and that Colonel Abel was, and still even in 2016, the highest ranking spy we have ever caught. We lived in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and we lived in um, an apartment building. And every morning, I would dress in my little uniform and head out the door. And once he started uh, the process of defending a Russian spy, Oh, my Lord. I mean, it was really dramatic. The people that took to the streets and came outside of our apartment building with big placards calling my father a commie lover. And I would duck under all of the people. And yet people would would shout out and say, don't you know your father is a criminal himself for taking this on? But we, you know, Dad and I had spoken about it, so I knew to just wave and smile. People would come up to me at school and say, my, my dad says that your dad's doing the wrong thing. And I found it confusing because it never occurred to me my father would do a wrong thing. I think when you're a kid and you're going through all of these things, you know, you think, well, I don't know, don't all parents do these things? My father was a renowned negotiator. And so as a little girl, if I saw, you know, a blazer that I wanted or something and Dad would say, well, now, talk to me about this. Why do you need this jacket, and what makes it so special? And I never did beat him. As a matter of fact, when I was 18, he wanted me to uh, come and have cocktail hour with people that he knew. And I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, now, come on now. I think they have their 17-year-old son with them. I said, oh, my Lord, no, no, I don't want that. And he said, Mary Ellen. This is just for cocktails. It's just two hours. It's not even dinner. So I said, you're right. I can do this. And I ended up marrying him. (laughs) You know, he always had a joyful aspect to it. I never saw him come home beleaguered by something that went on. I think I saw more exhaustion than anything else. But he was always in our lives. I don't remember him gone for long periods of time. 
So I don't know how he pulled that off, actually, when you think about it. I was 20 years old when he died. And, you know, I spent most of my life just handling the grief and moving on into a marriage and a career. And, you know, I miss his counsel. Um, Three nights before he died, I didn't know he was going to die. And he ended up staying with me till four in the morning talking about different subjects about my life and asking my asking him questions. And I do remember thinking about that and how crazy I was not to think that he might not always be there. He died at only 53 years old. He was young. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I have seen Bridge of Spies 13 times. The very first time I saw it, when I saw him stretched out on the bed, exhausted, I started sobbing. He was no longer a footnote in history. He was no longer in the shadows of history. It's almost like a love letter to my father. Mary Ellen Fuller is the daughter of James B. Donovan. He's the American lawyer played by Tom Hanks in Bridge of Spies. That's going to do it for today, but you can join us online. Tell us what you think of the show and submit your questions for upcoming episodes. We're working on a blockbuster show about the history of armed resistance in America. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Kelly Jones, and Emily Caddick. Jamal Milner is our engineer. Diana Williams is our digital editor. Brianna Azar is our digital intern. And Melissa Gismondi helps with research. Special thanks this week to our voice actors, James Scales, Jeff Culbertson, Shannon Kaysen, Roger Ainsley, and Dana Cola Giovanni. And to author Rebecca Prime. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel. History made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.